So, I don't really want to do any musical intro. I don't want to do any bumpers. I don't want to play any cuts, really. I just want to talk raw with you. Hey, I'm Alexander Garrett, and welcome inside to Keeping It Real with Alexander Garrett. To be very honest with you, I've been chomping at the bit. At the bit today to get back on this podcast because I've got a lot to tell you. Firstly, uh, a friend of mine, Brian, brought this up to me. He said I need to start making it known why my angle, why I care so much about the news that I talk about on this podcast. And I totally agree with them. And I was doing this mock monologue, but I, I feel compelled to tell you exactly what I told him with the same heart, with the same passion, with the same drive. Because you see, when a news bit hits my inbox or hits my newsfeed, hits my notifications. Why do I feel so compelled to tell you it when you may hear it 12,000 different places? Well, I'll tell you why. Because quite frankly, you won't hear it 12,000 different places. Quite frankly, quite frankly, there's this idea that the mainstream media doesn't want to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. They haven't once really reported that According to Washington Examiner, this whistleblower has worked with Joe Biden in the past. They don't want to tell you that, according to Washington Examiner, two of Adam Schiff's aides have worked with this whistleblower in the past. Yet, I feel like I'm placed on this earth to tell you stories like this because conservative, Democrat, whatever... You want to call me, well, certainly not a Democrat, but conservative or extremist or whatever you want to call me, there's a, there's a line that needs to be drawn between what my generation hears and what my generation should hear. And I feel like this podcast is meant to be what my generation, what others should hear. And you should be knowing that there were two aides linked to this whistleblower. You should be knowing that Biden worked with this whistleblower. It builds up the case that Trump is making and the idea that this really is a charade. It brings up the idea that why, why aren't the mainstream media outlets talking about this? And then there's another story. That really has been bothering me. And you know it bothers me if I post on Twitter or Facebook or even Quartz.com. It bothers me because the man that's getting trounced on for the way he deals with China is our president. Where are, where are the media outlets holding companies like Nike and Apple accountable for bowing down? Bowing down to China. NBA is what it is. But Apple pulling the protest apps because China scared them? Nike pulling Houston Rockets gear because the Rockets GM spoke out about this? Injustice being done in China? Aren't American companies supposed to have American values in line with each other? And if you are so worried about the way Trump is dealing with China. Why aren't you directing your cameras to this? 
to this story of how American companies are bowing down to the communist regime in China. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. It's unbelievable that we're seeing this much appeasement to the Chinese. And the man who's not appeasing them, the man who wants to get them to the table, the man who's trying to hold them in check, President Donald J. Trump, is getting crushed because of the tariff war, because of this and the... No. He's doing what's right for America. He's standing up to China. What can Tim Apple Cook and what can Nike, whose stocks actually dropped, funny enough, after this happened, what can all, they, all of them say about Trump if they themselves are bowing down to China? I didn't realize that James Harden actually apologized to China, which I think is kind of bizarre. But nonetheless, I want the Rockets this year. Look, the Knicks are with J.R. Barrett, R.J. Barrett. I don't know how they're going to be. But the Knicks, no. I'm going for the Rockets because of their general manager taking a stand in front of China. Taking a stand for the protesters. And that's all I got to say about that. Rockets are my dark horse this year. And I might get a jersey because I'm so proud that someone had the guts to stand up to him while in Shanghai. It's a big deal. And it's being underreported, as, or if it is reported, it's being skewed. We don't skew things here. We do not. I keep it real with Alexander Gary. That's why my big topic, and there'll be a couple of fun things I want to tell you about before. The, the podcast is done. But my to- topic today is, is this actually an impeachment inquiry? I've heard it on both sides of the aisle. This is an inquiry. This isn't an inquiry. They need a vote. The House votes, this, that, and the other. Well, I went to a constitutional theorist, Keith Whittington, who writes the Lawfare blog, and he also is a professor at Princeton University. And well, yeah, I wanted to welcome him to Keeping It Real with Alexander Garrett. Take a listen to what he had to say on this podcast this Friday. And with me right now here on Keeping It Real with Alexander Garrett is actually someone who's written a piece about this whole impeachment inquiry. I want to know, is this actually an impeachment inquiry against President Donald J. Trump? And right now, uh, I think I might have the answer. Keith Whittington is a professor of politics at the Princeton University, part of the Wilson William Nelson Cromwell uh, Department. And uh, Keith, Professor Whittington, welcome to the broadcast, first of all, the podcast, first of all. Thanks for having me. Now, you wrote this on the Lawfare blog. It's pretty down the line. I mean, it's pretty even. But it's true, I guess, that when Speaker Pelosi said that there was an impeachment inquiry, there was. Is that right? Uh, effectively, right? I mean, the Constitution doesn't require that there's uh, and doesn't set up any sort of um, starting line um, as to when an impeachment inquiry is actually begun. It's easy to imagine a committee of Congress might go, be going about its normal work and come across uh, some piece of information um, that suddenly gives rise to a concern that impeachable offenses might have been committed. Um, and then suddenly you have an impeachment inquiry where you didn't know you uh, were starting one. Um, so impeachment inquiries can start in all kinds of ways. Um, and the Constitution um, 
doesn't really care how they start. What the Constitution cares about is how they end, um, which ultimately requires a, a vote on the floor of the House. Now, and that that's the next question. So there's this argument that there needs to be a vote or it's not constitutional, it's not legal. Um, does a vote in the House truly matter? Uh, should there be a vote in the House, do you think? Well, there certainly would need to be a vote if, they, uh, if, if the majority concludes that they um, actually want to bring articles of impeachment um, against the president. Um, so uh, in, in order to impeach, um, you, you definitely need a vote um, on some specific um, articles that you then can bring to the Senate in order to conduct a trial on a set of impeachable offenses. Um, there's no requirement either in the Constitution or in current House rules that require um, a separate vote um, in order to begin the process of investigating uh, whether there have been impeachable offenses um, or inquiring into whether or not there are, uh, have been uh, impeachable offenses. Um, the House might choose to have such a vote. They have had um, votes like that in the past in various circumstances, um, but uh, House rules and the Constitution don't actually require it, and, and they may not wind up doing it this time. Now, let me ask you, did you write this article because you felt there were so many confusing arguments on both sides of the aisle that there had to be a let's get to the point of whether this is or not an impeachment inquiry? Yeah, for me, I've been interested in um, impeachment uh, for a long time. I, I sort of backed into an interest in um, particularly high-profile impeachment to presidents and Supreme Court justices and the like in American history. Um, it's it was a, a useful place to think about how constitutional politics uh, works uh, more more generally. Um, and then it turns out that having interest in impeachment actually has some relevance to the way the world works. Um, and so my core concern really is just trying to understand um, what the Constitution requires and, and how it has worked in practice and how it uh, can best work uh, in, in the future. Um, these impeachment contexts are um, obviously in, uh, laden with emotion and, and controversial, um, but, but it's important to try to think through carefully um, what the rules actually are and how we go about understanding them and, and how can we best implement them. We're talking with Keith Whittington. He's a professor at the William Nelson Cromwell uh, Professor of Politics at Princeton University. He's a contributor to Lawfare Blog, which, where I read this article, posted yesterday, by the way. And so, I mean, I just feel like at the same time, the Democrats seem to be shooting themselves in the foot just as much as Trump is in all of this. Would you agree? Uh, I think the Democrats have boxed themselves in in some ways. I mean, they've been so aggressive and so vocal about pursuing um, impeachment um, from very early on. And you can clearly see how Nancy Pelosi has tried to slow that train down some uh, and uh, lower expectations a bit. Um, but one consequence, I think, uh, of doing that is it certainly um, has uh, made Republicans very skeptical of any particular claims that they might raise about what impeachable offenses exist. And I think it's now led the administration to a point uh, where uh, the president is convinced he's going to be impeached regardless, um, and, and so how much worse can it be? Um, and so I think now the administration is really preparing itself uh, for the public fight, they're preparing it themselves for the Senate trial, um, and they're no longer really worried about um, how do we persuade the uh, House not to uh, go further in, in the impeachment process. Um, and so that's left, I think, the um, House majority um, in a bit of a difficult bind as they've been how to put together the case most effectively um, and how to move it forward. Now, is there anything about Trump that you happen to like or think that 
Uh, do you think this is an impeachable offense, what he did? Just your thoughts on that. Well, I think that there are aspects of this administration I've been supportive of and aspects of the administration I've certainly been um, disturbed by. Um, and uh, part of what is going on now, I think, and has really been going on through um, portions of the administration, um, is that there is a lot of uh, conduct that is um, certainly uh, questionable um, and the one we want to know more about. And so um, uh, I, I think it's certainly reasonable for the House to think that they need to uh, look more carefully and scrutinize uh, more carefully uh, what the administration um, has been doing uh, now relative to Ukraine. I think that's probably true in some other areas um, as, as well. Um, yeah, and then you, you want to wait and see what those investigations reveal, so what the facts um, ultimately uh, turn out to be, and then that can inform whether or not you think there are actually peaceful offenses here. And it also helps inform you to think about, well, what's the right remedy for the problems that are in front of us? And sometimes you might think that you've encountered some peaceful offenses, but you can actually solve that problem and address those issues um, with other kinds of tools besides just trying to impeach somebody and remove them from office. Um, but sometimes it may well be the case that you discover impeachable offenses and really the only way to deal with it um, is to pursue an impeachment and ultimately a removal. And uh, the, the the other thing is, so personally, I get that he tried to get Biden investigated, which is a pretty alarming thing, but I don't know if it's impeachable. It just it it doesn't have that ring. It doesn't seem as aggressive as I think the Democrats have made it sound. Well, that's certainly part of why uh, the founders entrusted um, Congress with the power of impeachment, that they thought that there uh, needed to be some kind of mechanism for um, uh, dealing with the potential problem of a very powerful official like the President of the United States um, uh, misbehaving in office um, in between elections. And there may be circumstances in which you couldn't wait um, another a uh, year, two years, three years until the next election in order to um, uh, deal with somebody who is uh, not conducting themselves properly um, in office and, and threatening the nation in some fundamental ways. Um, but they also wanted a mechanism that relied on a body that, uh, one, was accountable itself to the people, um, as uh, Congress is. And so if Congress misuses the impeachment power, um, uh, the people can hold them to account as well. And then also a body that can exercise real political judgment that could properly think about um, what are the president's responsibilities here, what do we expect out of presidents in these kinds of situations, um, and, and make some judgments about um, how serious um, of a um, uh, the violation of our expectations is this. Um, and, you know, the, you want experienced um, uh, politically savvy um, uh, individuals to be uh, trying to, to make that kind of judgment. And so um, there's no body that's going to be perfect in, in evaluating those things. And, of course, now we also have to deal with political parties, which are um, either going to wind up lining up in favor of some president or line up um, in a way that's pretty hostile to some president. Um, but, you, but ultimately you want a, a body like a Congress where there are people who uh, can think seriously about and have some experience with the way the government works um, to uh, try to uh, look at the facts of a given situation and, and make some judgments about um, uh, how we all think about those and how we ought to move forward. And that's why I thought two weeks ago when this hearing was supposed to be a very serious hearing with the DNI acting director and 
you know, Schiff goes on and rewrites the whole call. I mean, it just was so flagrant. And I don't know if you've been following this, but 87 lawmakers have co-sponsored a bill to censure him. I mean, do you think Schiff's doing a disservice to this whole process? Well, I think it is part of the challenge now is that um, there's just a lot of built-up um, hostility and um, skepticism on, on both sides of the political aisle. And so uh, neither side trusts the other um, very much in these kinds of investigations, um, and especially in this context where we're talking about things involving American national security, things involving uh, sensitive issues of American diplomacy and foreign policy, um, you'd really prefer a process in which there was uh, somewhat greater trust um, between the parties and also between the branches of government such that um, it was possible to share information um, and have uh, more serious and sometimes um, uh, some secret uh, deliberations. Um, so it should be possible sometimes for committees to be able to meet behind closed doors in order to um, take evidence and, and gather information. Um, and in this environment, it's just been very hard. Uh, for for uh, Congress to be able to do that. Um, and so it just makes all these kind of investigations uh, much more difficult as a consequence. Well, when, when this Clinton impeachment happened, I, I don't know how old you were. Were you covering it at that time, or were you younger? Well, where were you at that stage in, in, the, in that? So, so I was just starting my career. I, I finished my dissertation. I was uh, beginning uh, my career as a professor, and... Um, and part of my dissertation was about presidential impeachment. And so, uh, so I was particularly interested in the Clinton impeachment, um, given my own sort of scholarly interest. Um, certainly thought it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and not even a once-in-a-lifetime experience, given how long it had been uh, since the prior impeachment uh, efforts. Um, so it's a little shocking that we're I'm already back in, in the same mix and already uh, talking about impeachments again. And I want to bring you back to this point where you said the Founding Fathers wanted this to be about the people. This isn't going to be resting on the people. Let's say there are a lot of Trump-swung districts and they don't do a formal House. Is that partly because they're worried they would lose those districts in 2020? Do you think that's a real fear of the Democrats? That's really part of the concern, right? I mean, part of, I think um, um, uh, part of what uh, the worry is among uh, Democrats and, and the Speaker Pelosi is worried about um, is that uh, uh, some of these uh, Democrats who are in, um, you know, purplish districts um, uh, where the margins of support for a Democratic legislator are not necessarily that high, um, have to worry about how those votes are going to be perceived. Um, and so uh, voting to launch an impeachment inquiry um, is going to be portrayed um, by opponents and certainly seen by some voters um, as functionally equivalent to a vote to impeach itself. Um, and so until you actually know where the investigation might be and what the facts are, um, I think properly some congressmen are, are reluctant to get too far out in front of that. Um, and as a consequence, some of them are pretty reluctant to go on the record um, on on what we know now. Um, at some point, they will have to go on record if, if they actually come to a conclusion they want to um, impeach the president. They will have to take a vote on that, and everybody's going to have to pick a side um, and and have their vote counted and be held accountable for it. Um, but it's not, I think, surprising that uh, congressmen who are sitting in uh, centrist uh, swing districts. Um, are sort of reluctant to uh, pick a side uh, too early.
Right. And obviously here in New York City, you know, Max Rose declared it last week, which shocked pretty much everybody in New York City. Like, wow, a, a guy in a Trump district on Staten Island went for the inquiry. I think people were shocked he actually admitted it publicly. Yeah, no, I think the Democratic caucus is shifting very quickly on this, which uh, it wouldn't surprise me if eventually uh, Pelosi decides that it makes sense to uh, go ahead and have a vote on authorizing an impeachment inquiry in order to try to take away this talking point um, from the Republicans and from the president. Um, I think in the past You mentioned some of the electoral calculations. It might seem like Trump and the GOP are are clanging on the clinging on this for for twenty twenty implications. But would you say the Democrats have launched this in what they think is the right time to maybe get more people, more public, saying, "Hey, this guy may not be good for us." Do you think this is a Democratic calculation as well? I think both sides are certainly thinking about the presidential campaign. Um, I'm not sure the Democrats are thinking this is necessarily the right time to be launching it. Um, I expect, uh, from a electoral perspective, there's some mixed feelings about that because there's also um, a worry from their part that you convert a presidential election just into a referendum about whether or not Trump ought to be impeached. And um, I'm not sure the Democrats necessarily think that's their best um, path to uh, winning um, the White House in, in 2020. Um, but, you know, but they certainly are um, thinking about this, as the Republicans are thinking about, um, how people are going to respond to this and what are going to be the consequences um, for the presidential race. The impeachment process is just uh, intrinsically political. It's um, uh, uh, part of what happens when you entrust uh, these kind of decisions to an electorally accountable institution like um uh, like the Congress, um, and when it involves um, high government officials like uh, an elected president. And so um, partisan calculations, electoral calculations, long-term political calculations are just going to necessarily be part of the equation um, as uh, members of Congress are thinking about whether or not it uh, makes sense to pursue an impeachment. Now, I'm looking at your your uh, columns here, and it's all about basically about the impeachment process. I, I don't know if the average American thinks about the impeachment every day up until now, but it seems like it's been on your I brain for a, for a long time. Do you feel like there's a niche for people just to think about impeachment? Like, is there a niche that researches it and thinks about it almost constantly? Well, I, I certainly don't think about it almost constantly. It's uh, it's it's. Uh... Uh, on occasion, it has emerged as something that I uh, spend more time uh, focusing on, um, and then other times I'm, I'm working on other issues. But it's, uh, yeah, I think this is part of what you hope that, um, as a scholar, you can bring to the table. That um, uh, academics um, study all kinds of topics, often uh, quite obscure and, and not necessarily uh, relevant to day to day life. Um, but when the occasion arises in which you have developed some expertise on something that um, 
actually does seem to uh, be relevant in matters. You want to um, try to make that expertise available and, and do what you can to uh, try to elevate the, the discussion. So um, it happens that uh, impeachments are, are one of the things that I've uh, spent time uh, studying. Um, I didn't think I would wind up talking about it um, that much over the course of my career, but it turns out um, it's been relevant. And so um, when it's when it's relevant, I certainly want to uh, do what I can to um, help them along. And so I'm definitely going to have Mr. Whittington back, Keith Whittington back. Thanks, Keith, for joining me today on this podcast. Now, there are a couple of things that I'd like to talk about before we end. First of all, I need your prayers. Um, my birthday is October 20th. And it's one of the most rockiest birthdays I am expecting to have. Because I might lose my insurance. And I know I've talked about this before, but crunch time is now. Time is now. And really, the, the quote, time is of the essence, is real. So I would love your prayers in this endeavor to get insurance and that things work out and putting that in the universe. And then there are a couple of cool things. First of all, I didn't know until I saw my friend Marla's story on Instagram. Notre Dame is playing University of Southern California. Notre Dame, USC. One of the most storied matchups in the history of college football. And actually, there's a party tomorrow night to watch it. I don't know if I'll be able to go. They're having a Notre Dame-USC watch party brought to you by Barstool Sports. That's tomorrow, 730 East 41st Street, Public House, New York City. And uh, it'll be I'm sure it'll be a good night. I'll be actually casting and announcing the Queens College soccer programs tomorrow. So uh, maybe I'll do a little play-by-play of that. I don't really know soccer as well as I should to do play-by-play. But that's besides the point. So we got that at the public house. And then a friend of mine, or someone that I follow on Instagram, and I actually happen to see him along the subway singing his heart out, Jamel NYT. He'll be live at the well in 272 Messerol Street in Brooklyn, New York, if you're in New York. Uh, tomorrow night, 6.30 to 7.45. Check it out, Jamel NYT. You can follow him. Jamel NYT, just like that. All right, well, I'm Alexander Garrett, and thanks for listening to this week's, this day's episode of Keeping It With Alexander Garrett, talking about what I think you needed to know, and uh, we'll see you soon. Have a great night and a great weekend.